You're listening to the 66, and I'm just going <laughs> to go some uh, total transparency for our nationwide audience today, Drew. So last week I got like done with a lot of my work early for this week. Okay. Because I'm trying to read this book, and I figured I'd come in the morning, every right. morning this week, a cup of coffee. This is transparency for me, because I have no idea what you're about to say. Yeah, this is brand new for you. Okay. Um, thought I'd get a cup of coffee, sit at my desk, read my book, you know, mm-hmm. about an hour, hour and a half in the morning when it's still quiet, and then get into stuff. Um, but yesterday afternoon, I did tell you this, got a letter in the mail. Had a couple of, like, tax documents I got to finish filling out. Oh, yeah. So this morning, that's, uh, I got re- I got Anything roped into doing... Anything you say or do on this podcast can be used against you in yeah, court of law. <laughs> You're right. All that to say, my state of mind right now is the state of mind you're in and when you deal with confusing tax documents. Yeah. So, well, you, I'm you feeling great. Shaved. Yeah, I have not shaved. Today. Did not shave this morning. And it would have been nice the, if you had put on a pair of pants. <laughs> yeah. But podcasting <laughs> doesn't matter. It's no, we don't video podcast this thing, so it doesn't matter. Um, so now that everybody's really uncomfortable, uh, let's get into First Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we are today. We have, we're Sounds like shifting. I'm going to be doing most of the talking this <laughs> yeah, hour. Probably so. <laughs> get most of my talking in now. This is great. Yeah, this is good. We can just trash it and start over. Uh, but in chapter four, we're really shifting gears from what we've been talking about. So the first half of the book, uh, or this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul was kind of recalling his ministry in Thessalonica. And we mentioned that's from Acts chapter 17. Um, a familiar name maybe from there would be Jason. Uh, he and along with the other few of the other Christians were dragged out um, as the city officials were looking for Paul. But Paul uh, spent some time there in Thessalonica, and he kind of recalls what happened while he was with them. Uh, He sent Timothy over to him, and Timothy brings this encouraging report back, and that's at the end of chapter 3. But when we get to the start of chapter 4, which Drew has the outline for today, like he said, he's going to do most of the talking, Uh, that first word at the start of chapter 4 is, Finally, so Paul is beginning uh, to wrap up the letter. He's recalled what he has done, and now he's getting to some other matters. He's really shifting gears there, and that term at the start of chapter 4 kind of helps us uh, as you're reading it through, if you're reading it all in one sitting. uh, It's a flag to let you know that the gears are shifting here. He's moving on to something else, and he is going to move on to really some some exhortations for the people to continue in what they've been doing, and he gets specific about a few commands he left for them. Um, and then to the end of the book, he's going to talk about the coming of the Lord, which is a theme that we have mentioned already in the book. And then for the last uh, about 15 verses or so, uh, he's going to give them, as you see at the end of a lot of Paul's letters, that section on like the final instructions which is uh, a lot right. of... Right, yeah, we'll do that Yeah. for for next time. But Right. Uh, yeah, so I was telling Andrew that I tried to find a good heading that describes all of chapter 4 and failed to do so because the first part, the first 12 verses of chapter 4 are so different from the last few verses, the last paragraph there of chapter mm-hmm. 4. 
Um, but we are going to, we'll probably call this episode the second coming or something like that, or encourage one another. But um, we're going to cover the entirety of chapter four because it's just not very long. Yeah. And we are trying to get through the books of the Bible in a survey fashion instead of verse by verse. Uh, so note that as we shift from verse 12 to, to verse 13. So what's the first 12 verses of chapter 4 about? This is more uh, about growth, and I know we have already talked about growth with the Thessalonians. Uh, it makes sense that this theme would be important to Paul to this particular church, because if you'll remember, as, as Andrew was going over for us a moment ago, Paul did not get to spend as long with this church as he wanted. Their time together had been cut short. He had to leave town, and so he's encouraging them to grow. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he tells them that they've been doing well, and they've been walking, they've been pleasing God. But he says, he encourages them here and also in verse 10 to do that more and more. So it's not, right. you never just arrive. You never just get to the point where you've done enough. Mm -hmm. However much you're pleasing God, you can always please him more and more. Yeah. That's the theme of the first 12 verses of chapter 4. And so he asked for more of a few specific things in this section. Number one, he asked for more self-control. That's verses 3 through 8. He says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Uh, so, so things similar uh, to 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul was writing to a pagan community there saying, Flee fornication. See the yeah. same kind of thing here. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's the ESV. The King James uses the term fornication where we have sexual immorality, which yeah. refers to every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. Yeah. So it's not just you know adultery. It's all, all kinds of illicit sexual activity outside of marriage. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, uh, Do you maybe this is better suited for the next section, so you can just put me off till then. Okay. This Might kind be. of... It reminds me of, you know, Acts 15, where they have that council in Jerusalem, and they decide what they're going to tell all the Gentile believers. Right. Because uh, he says, we know what instructions, in verse 2 he says, we know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And he talks about controlling your own body, specifically with that idea of sexual immorality. And he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Right, And then when the church is established, he mentions that a great number of devout Greeks obey the gospel in Thessalonica in Acts 17.4. Um, and one of the things that they sent out from that council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, they gave them three things. In verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep these... Uh, for yourselves, you will do well, mm -hmm. farewell. So kind of an interesting think, tie back, maybe. Yeah, I think that is a tie-in. I, You know, again, Corinth had a problem with this. Yeah. And, you know, from person to person, everybody has to be careful about this problem. 
So a Jewish person doesn't really succeed more than a Gentile person at this particular problem. But culturally speaking, the Jewish people were accustomed, they knew right from wrong in this matter. Yeah. They had those boundaries drawn for them centuries before in the Ten Commandments, for example. But culturally, Gentiles often worshipped through sexual immorality. Idolatry was right. rife yeah. with sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine, it's hard for Americans to imagine this kind of thing. Well, no, actually it's not, but they just mm-hmm. had no qualms with it whatsoever. Yeah. Whereas Jewish people knew they shouldn't be doing it, even if they were still tempted to, to commit adultery or yeah. whatever the problem might be. And there are several that could be categorized as fornication. So that was the first, you know, you're, you're living pure lives, keep living pure lives, more and more. Yeah. Uh, secondly, he asked for more brotherly love. This is verses 9 and 10. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing. Okay, so it's like we were saying before, they are doing well in this. But he goes on to say, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So keep loving one another, love one another more and more and more. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, verses 11 and 12 on this uh, growth section of chapter 4, he asks him, thirdly, for more enjoyment of life. That's Maybe that's not the best way to put it. You be the judge. I'll read the verses. Uh, okay. He says, uh, he also wanted them to aspire to live quietly and to mind their own affairs, and to work with their own hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Those instructions to me, and there are three of them that I'll go back over real quickly, seem to have to do with just, you know, everyday living. Mm -hmm. And he says, with regard to your everyday life, number one, verse 11, aspire to live quietly. That's not a, you know, an adverb that has to do uh, with not talking or whispering all the time, or not Mm -hmm. making loud noises in your garage, but it means, you know, a calm, tranquil life. Yeah. Uh, That idea is used a couple times in 1 Timothy 2. Number two, he says, mind your own affairs. Uh, When you're idle and you're not busy and occupied with uh, important things, you tend to get into other people's business, which is a problem you see in 2 Thessalonians. We'll come to that. It's You'll see why he's giving this instruction more when we get to Second Thessalonians. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It seems to be a problem in Thessalonica. Yeah. Idle people. In this particular church, uh, Paul calls them busybodies yeah. in chapter 3. Uh, finally, work with your own hands. Again, this is a problem that's going to come up in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say too much on the reasons why, because those are revealed in the second epistle, and I want to say some discussion for that. We need letter. something to talk about when we do that. That's episode. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If the podcast doesn't end before then, but anyway, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna save that for then, and uh, that is the section on growing more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're doing well at these three things. They just need to continue to grow in them. But the really exciting part of this hasn't come yet. That starts in verse 13, for me, anyway. And this is where Mm -hmm. he turns to one of the most complete sections of Scripture on the return of Jesus Christ. Right. Or the second coming of Jesus Christ, 
or if you want to get you know pretentious and use the Greek word the parousia, yeah, um, which we that's a word we mentioned in the first episode on First Thessalonians, mm-hmm. which is translated coming, and it has to do with the sudden arrival of a king in this case Jesus Christ. So um, here's how we'll break that down. We'll start number one with a perspective on things. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He's giving them these instructions with a perspective of hope, noting that grief is common to all, but there is a grief that belongs to those who have no hope, and there is a grief that belongs to those who hope. Mm -hmm. And it's much better, of course, to be in the category of people who have hope. Uh, He says at the end of the chapter, you know, I want you to encourage one another with these words. Um, Now, the problem that he's probably facing is, having spent a little time with them in person, he told them about the second coming, and they assumed he was talking about something that would happen within their lifetimes. After Paul departed prematurely, some of their family members, some of the people at the church there passed away, they died. Uh, He uses the word asleep later on, but Mm -hmm. he means death. And they assumed wrongly that meant they missed out on the second coming, that the people who died wouldn't get to go with Jesus to heaven. And he's writing these words to correct their misunderstanding. So let's get to that. After a perspective, he gives a premise at the beginning of verse 14, which is this. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, you know, because Jesus died and rose again, we know that those who are asleep, those who died, did not miss the second coming, but he's going to bring them with him. Uh, He turns from that to the plan, which is, you know, the hope, the future hope that every Christian should have. He says in verse 15, We declare to you, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the promise that he has. Uh, The plan, rather, is what I called it, that he has. So to break that down again, he gives this series of events. He says, number one, Jesus is going to descend from heaven. Right. And you remember what the angels told the disciples in Acts 1 when they watched him ascend Mm -hmm. into heaven. The same way that he went up, he's coming back down. Right. So this reflects that. Uh, Number two, he said the dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, He's not talking about them rising first in relation to the wicked wicked dead. Uh, Other passages of Scripture, such as Acts uh, 24, John 5, 28, and 29, tell us there will be a simultaneous resurrection at the end of time Mm -hmm. of the righteous and the wicked. He's talking about them rising first in relation to the catching up of the those who are still living on earth at the time. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk about that more, I think, in the next segment. But okay. that that's what comes next. Jesus comes down, the dead in Christ rise first, 
And then he says, next, those who are left until the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Finally, he says, we will always be with the Lord. We will ever be with the Lord. We will eternally be with the Lord. And that's the basic timeline of things. And of course, I know that has interested a lot of people. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. a lot of questions. We'll try to answer those when we come back after a little break. been looking forward to this part of First Thessalonians since we started it. I just I, I think a lot of people are interested in the second coming, and there are a lot of mistaken ideas about the second coming. I've been surprised to read these ideas in the writings of some people I really admire. Um, I admire their intellect. I admire their ability to teach the scriptures, and then I'll see some things that are just plainly in uh, in conflict with the passages we just read here at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. So to help some folks and maybe generate discussion, dialogue, you know, contact Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com or me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. You can find us online, uh, tweet things at us, whatever. But... Uh, we want to go over some of these ideas, and, you know, I, I realize that some things we're going to say here might be a little controversial. We mean no ill will. We're just trying to look at what this actually says. And, you know, Andrew, everybody's involved in this now. Everybody's trying to make a buck off of this. You've got, first the books came, you know, the novels, and then yeah. they started making movies out of these. And then they started remaking. This was the amazing part is, when they started remaking the movies they made before. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nicolas Cage got involved in this kind of thing. Yeah. So when you're fighting Big Nicolas surprise. Cage, <laughs> uh, we thought it was bad when we were fighting Kirk Cameron, but when you start yeah. fighting Nicolas Cage, it's it's uh, really, really tough. It, it gets emotional for some people. Yeah. Um, right. So I want to start with the rapture. Okay. Now, before I show how this text does not describe the rapture, I want our listeners to understand what the doctrine of the rapture is in the context of the whole dispensational theory. Um, so it basically starts with the idea that when Jesus came the first time, he came to establish his kingdom, but he wasn't accepted, he was rejected and crucified and because of the crucifixion, he ascended into heaven, promising to come back and try again, and the church was established as an afterthought. A lot of people aren't familiar with that part of it. But then, you know, it is believed that he will return secretly and rapture or catch up. And you'll see that verb here in verse 17. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. I'll get to that in a moment. That's where the word rapture comes from, is that idea. It means to be caught up. He will secretly catch up the living, resurrect the righteous dead, and take only those away from the earth 
so that there could be a seven-year tribulation. After the seven-year tribulation, there is a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. That's called premillennialism. And at the end of that time, there will be a resurrection of the wicked, judgment day, heaven, and hell. Now, I realize that doesn't represent all versions of premillennialism. I mean, you have mm-hmm. to pick one at some point. There are so many different theories about it. Um, you know, I can't, I can't summarize them all in one, one statement. Mm-hmm. This uh, comes into conflict with that idea in so many ways. Uh, oh, man. So, first of all, well, where do we start? I, w- I was going to try to split all this stuff up, but I just joined yeah. it all together. So let's just work through the text. First of all, Jesus comes back. And as I said before, there's nothing here to suggest that there's going to be a separate resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Yeah. I, I realize that he says that the dead in Christ will rise first verse 16 mm-hmm. the only way that you can conclude from that 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 is to be distinguished from the the wicked dead is if you read that into the text and you take that out of context right and because and if you ignore other passages of scripture because yeah. he's referring when he says first they're saying they're going to rise first he's definitely comparing them to the christians that are still living not so exactly. unrighteous people, whether living or dead, or not even, they're not mentioned at any point in this passage, right? Right, right. Because in verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up to meet them and caught up together with them in the clouds. So, you know, he's, he's distinguishing the dead from the living, mm-hmm. not the righteous dead from the wicked dead. And other passages, and I gave these verses a moment ago, but I'm going to read them now, say this. This is Jesus' words in John 5, 28, 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, an hour, a time, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So they're coming at the Mm -hmm. same time. Uh, Paul says this also in Acts 24, verse 15, where he says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The Bible never teaches that there's going to first be a resurrection of the righteous, and then seven years later, or a thousand and seven years later, there will be a resurrection of the wicked. I realize there's talk of a first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, uh, that is a very symbolic passage of Scripture that, you know, I don't think we really have time to get into here. Um, but there's much to be said on, on that point as well that just cannot be said in under 25 minutes, I don't think. So right. I'm going to stay away from that and wait till we get to the book of Revelation Okay. <laughs> whenever we do that. Yeah, um, we can just do that one next. Okay, so what about the... Thou- Okay, well, let's stick with the rapture. Okay, right. so the secret rapture idea. Uh, there are major problems with that also, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what did you see? I, well, anything secret about this? To uh, you? I think the biggest thing that's going to knock off your the secret idea is verse 16, right? The Lord's going to descend from heaven with a cry of a command, 
with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. And there's going to be people rising from the dead. So I think it's going to be kind of hard to avoid. I know. Even in the <laughs> even in the the versions of it told by the people who believe in this, I've always wondered, how is it secret when there are people coming out of the tombs? Yeah. I mean, we drive, we drive by a cemetery every single day right here near the church building. It's up on a hillside. And uh, if anybody was coming out of a tomb there... I I would see that happening, and I, I know I'm probably maybe I didn't watch the movies closely enough. I I never saw them to be honest. Yeah, but I mean it's gonna be. I saw the Kirk Cameron one like back when it first came out on VHS. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I can't remember any of that stuff. I and, did read the books though. And and maybe the sounds that are described here are not meant to be taken literally um the cry of command the voice of the archangel the sound of the trumpet of god yeah but they do mean something right i mean yes. they mean it's noticeable there's going to be an announcement it, it's going to draw the attention of others yeah in some way and why wouldn't it be the voice of the archangel yeah. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, Paul repeats the same thing, that it's going to be the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. Uh, so he describes the same kind of situation there. And John yeah. in Revelation 1-7 says that when he comes with the clouds, same kind of language you used in 1 Thessalonians 4. Which is also author. the same language from Acts 1, where he goes yes, back up that, to the clouds. That's true. Yeah, uh, every eye will see him. And he emphasizes even those who pierced him. So especially the wicked. Yeah. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So I don't know how you get the idea of a secret rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or Revelation yeah. chapter 1. Yeah. So I think so far, maybe just to summarize where we've come to, We've got a few issues with this rapture idea from Thessalonians from First Thessalonians four. Number one, our issue is that the resurrection of Christian takes place, or the resurrection of righteous people uh, who have been Christians historically takes place before some other resurrection of wicked people. Maybe wicked people are never resurrected. I'm not sure. I'm not schooled enough to know from. No, they are. They they happen later. at the same time. No, they happen at the same time. Okay, so I thought we were trying to make the distinction here that the maybe rapture teaching shows or advocates the point that the resurrection of Christians happens first, and then later after the tribulation and all those things. Right, that's what the rapture and, view says. Right. Okay, so, so yeah, that's I was, what I'm just saying. wasn't listening. So we're trying to lay that out and say this is where Thessalonians would disagree. Right, right, okay. Yeah. I thought you are saying that's what you thought. No. I was like, wow. What? No. Okay. No, I'm Sorry. not going to. I won't do that to you live on the air confusing. here. <laughs> uh, so, but you have passages like you mentioned from John and then that Paul yeah. also mentions later that there's one resurrection uh, for the righteous and the wicked that takes place at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have the word first here is to draw the distinction between living Christians and those who have already passed yeah. on or have already yeah. fallen asleep. Right. 
And the and you have to remember the concern all the time is that the living Christians are afraid that their their brothers and sisters who have passed away are going to miss out on the second coming. Yeah. They're I not, wonder if some of that yeah. comes from their Jewish influence around them because there were a lot of Greek there were some Jews as well. We I know we mentioned earlier there were many of the devout Greeks joined but there was at least a decent number of Jews that joined from Acts 17 as well. Right. Um and I wonder if some of them had a background of being with the Sadducees because you know they don't believe in the resurrection period. So, well, you have the Sadducees but then you have the Epicureans who don't believe yeah. in any kind of afterlife. You got the yeah. Stoics who believe in like it's kind of like eastern religion impersonal absolute where you're just absorbed into the yeah. the absolute this impersonal force yeah. that god is in everybody that kind of idea um so all all the way around you've got doubts regarding resurrection mm-hmm. and afterlife that he's addressing here yeah um so by way of point 1 resurrection of everyone happens at the same time. Uh, point two that we just got through talking about is the secret rapture doesn't really hold up uh, because we have the image of the trumpet and the shout also from 1 Corinthians 15 and as you pointed out from Revelation 1-7 where he especially takes the time to mention those who are wicked, the ones who yeah. Um, yeah. Even crucified him. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but um, you know, in Matthew 24 there is that section where one is in the field, and one is yeah. One is taken, one is left, and and I realize that's a difficult passage. I'm not sure that I fully understand everything that is meant there, but I do know that if I interpret that to mean that somebody suddenly disappears, but others are left behind on earth, uh, as in a rapture type situation, I bring myself into conflict with many plain spoken passages of scripture. And I think it's obvious that Jesus is using apocalyptic, symbolic, literate language in Matthew 24. And yeah. uh, all that's surrounding that, like the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and things like that, show yeah. that he's using that illustration to describe the suddenness with which the Lord will return. Right. The unexpected nature of it. He, he compares it right before that. He talks about Noah. It'll be like yeah. in the days of Noah, mm-hmm. when all of a sudden this flood came and the people weren't expecting. People were getting married. People were living their mm-hmm. lives. That's when he gets into the you know there'll be people working in the field. It's going to be a normal day like any other day, and then boom, the Lord's coming back. Yeah, and then he and then he goes on to say he'll come like a thief in the night. Yeah. So if you read it contextually, and you don't bring it your interpretation into conflict with other passages. It just means he's going to come suddenly without warning. Yeah, um, and that's reiterated in the next chapter of First Thessalonians. So right here in this yeah, section on the, right. on the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord idea is something that for Paul and other Jews is extremely familiar. You already mentioned Noah. Um, and I guess that place in Matthew 24, that's the only place I know of where that's compared to a day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord, I guess, is most common in the prophets, right? So you've got... Mm-hmm. It's uh, definitely in there a lot. Amos with the earthquake. You've got Joel with the locusts um, and others as well, talking about the day of the Lord being some kind of sudden Zephaniah judgment. Zephaniah uses coming. the phrase. Yeah. So definitely this day of the Lord has that connotation of God. This is when God's going to complete his judgment. Yeah. 
You know, not yeah. when God's going to judge a small portion of us and then judge the rest of us mm-hmm. later. Right. Yeah. Um, we haven't gotten to the thousand-year reign yet. Um, the thousand years is mentioned only one time in Scripture, in Revelation chapter 20. In that chapter, there are 15 verses and at least 20 different symbols. And the thousand years is one of those symbols. Mm-hmm. It has to do with a complete period of time, not a literal 1,000 years. It is theorized by the people who believe in the rapture that Jesus is coming back to reign on earth in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. But when you read 1 Thessalonians 4, you don't get anything like that. In fact, Jesus never sets foot on earth. He doesn't step onto earth ever. He doesn't come to Jerusalem. Those who are left and the dead are caught up together with him in the clouds. They meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, You can put that together with what Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3, when he said, If I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. So he's saying, you know, where I'm going, I'm, I'm coming back so that I can bring you there. He's not saying I'm coming back so I can live on earth again. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that. No. Um, but that is believed by a number of people, not just those who believe in the 1,000-year reign, but also the restored earth bunch who say, mm-hmm. you know, Revelation 21 pictures Jesus bringing heaven with him to join up with earth, and that's the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. Um, and I, I, some of our listeners may be hearing these things and saying, well, I've never heard of that before. Uh, there are so many ideas and imaginative concepts of what are, is going to happen with the second coming. It's impossible for us to to cover all of them in, in this episode. We could do a whole podcast yeah. with a new episode every week on theories about the second coming. Yeah, definitely. It's so. not enough time to go over them all. Yeah. Um, there's another category that I feel like we have to address, and that's the idea that Jesus has already come back and that 1 Thessalonians 4 has been already been fulfilled. Yeah. Um, you know, this is interesting. It's ironic because the Thessalonians had people among them, we'll learn in the next letter, who are telling people that the Lord has already come back. Mm-hmm. And so Paul writes Second Thessalonians pretty much to to combat that idea. Well, we still have that today where folks are saying that the the return of the Lord was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And they get that, you know, people say, where in the world did they get that idea? Well, there is, like Andrew was saying a moment ago, the phrase, the day of the Lord, and even the coming of the Lord is somewhat fluid in its ability to cover different kinds of events of judgment. So it can cover temporal judgment or eternal judgment. Mm -hmm. So there are cases where I think the end of Matthew 16 is one example, where the Mm -hmm. coming of the Lord is a reference to uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was certainly concerned with that. At the beginning of Matthew 24, he talks about that. Right. He talks about it when he's on his way to the cross, and he tells the women, don't don't cry for me. 
daughters of Jerusalem. You know, he's he's concerned about them, especially those who will be living when the Romans come to take Jerusalem out of judgment, out of the judgment of God. Yeah, that's the abomination of desolation, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Matthew 24, he uses mm-hmm. that phrase. But then there are other passages. This is one of them where you cannot you cannot take that point of view. Jesus is obviously talking about returning, getting those who have died in a resurrection, mm-hmm. catching up those who are still alive, changing the course of history, actually stopping history, and now we're ever eternally with the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, there are other arguments that can be made against that idea. But, you know, a lot of people have gotten online and read these intricate rationales behind this idea that Jesus has already come back. And yeah. what they don't see is that there are some gigantic holes left in that. But mm-hmm. if you read the New Testament or read the Bible from beginning to end, you cannot walk away from that without having this sense that we're waiting for the Lord to come back. Yeah, I think uh, towards the end of that section we just mentioned from Matthew, in Matthew 25, he starts talking about this final day of the Lord, his final coming, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. In verse 31 of Matthew 25, before him will be all gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And that's the famous passage where, you know, he tells uh, some of them, I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink. And he tells the other group they did not. And they ask, when did we see you doing that? And he says, uh, truly, I said to you, as you did not do it for the one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And in verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And you, it's difficult to read any other interpretation into that other than there is coming a day when all nations, all people will be gathered before God or gathered before the Lord here more specifically when yeah, the Son of Man time, comes. same time, same event. Everyone all together, yeah. one event, and at the end of this event, some will go away to punishment, some will go away to eternal life. Yeah, and in other passages, there's this distinction that is made between, I mean, it's almost like it's set up for people who are going to teach this kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. in Matthew 24, Jesus discusses both the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, um, by God through the Romans and the second coming of Christ at the end of time. And the verse that separates those two topics is verse 36, where he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. So he's saying there's a day coming when you see the abomination desolation spoken to the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I hope you're not pregnant in those days. Pray that you won't. Pray that it won't be in winter. Pray that it won't be on the Sabbath day. He's talking about when the Romans are coming. Okay, mm-hmm. a temporal judgment of God. And he goes on for a long time, and he may use apocalyptic literature, and he may talk about the symbol of the fig tree and all this stuff. Yeah. But then he gets to verse 36, and he says, "Okay, now I'm going to change subjects of that day and of that hour." I'm not giving you any signs. It's going to come like yeah. a thief in the night. No one knows, not even me, but the mm-hmm. Father only. 
And so it's like it's almost like he wrote this to address this problem. People saying the Lord's already come back in some temporal way. Yeah. And that the whole Bible is about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Something that even the writers who wrote Scripture after A.D. 70 made no mention of. Yeah. Which, you know, causes these people to say, well, that wasn't written after A.D. 70. And then we get into all kinds of other problems. And I know that a lot of our listeners haven't heard this kind of thing. I'm just afraid that one day they will, and they'll be ill-prepared for it. I'm just, we're just telling you it's mm-hmm. out there. First Thessalonians 4 doesn't support it. Other right. scriptures in the Bible don't support it. Don't let anybody, you know, he's, Paul says, I don't want any of you to be uninformed about the state of your dead loved ones. Uh, we don't want you to be uninformed when you come into contact with people who believe in premillennialism or the rapture or uh, separate resurrection of the righteous and the wicked or the idea that Jesus already come back. You can... You can use the tools that are given to you just by these few verses and get a clearer understanding. And, you know, I guess right. I'll end what I've got to say. And if you got more, Andrew, feel free. But okay. I, want, I also want to say this. Always, here's a rule of biblical interpretation that will be very helpful. Always interpret the more complicated passage of Scripture with the plainer passages of Scripture. Don't start in Revelation 20. Start with 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John chapter 5, the last part of Matthew 24, 2 Peter chapter 3. There's so Mm -hmm. many plain, literal passages of Scripture describing the end of time. You start with those, and you interpret Revelation 20, 21, 22 Mm -hmm. through the lens of those plainer passages of Scripture. That's very similar uh, to what I was going to weigh in with my last word here was that we've got to take so example if you if you go start and you read Matthew 24 and 25 which as you mentioned is a very difficult uh, passage to interpret and to really feel like you've got a great handle on or that you're an expert in uh, starting there might not be the best idea but like you said starting with passages that very plainly and simply tell you what's going on like this one 1 Thessalonians 4 very plainly and simply tells you that, um, you know, there's going to be this resurrection. It's going to happen um, when Christ comes back. There's going to be the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet. We're going to meet the Lord in the air, encourage one another with these words. When you read that so plainly in those other passages, that plain interpretation, just like you said, informs our interpretation of the difficult ones. That way, we're not trying to read into some very difficult, some very difficult idea into a plain passage. Um, that's an excellent rule of thumb to keep in mind with biblical interpretation. like to close these out trying to get a little practical especially after a long uh geek out on stuff that we enjoy talking about and um you know i i don't feel like i feel like everything we talked about in the last segment was pretty important uh this go around i think that was a really relevant section something might promote some um some discussion 
But I, I want to go back to you know some of the other points that Paul talked about that are very practical that we've, we've skipped over, and it was because we were saving them for this. And the first goes all the way back to verse 3 on sexual immorality. Now, I did say that that word or that phrase translated fornication in the King James has to do with every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. Biblically speaking, that would include adultery, that would include premarital sex, that would include homosexuality. So it's not just one kind of sexual immorality. And, uh, um, well, anyway, that that's the basic idea. Now, a lot of people read these passages in the Bible and they say, well, you know, it was easier for the early Christians to follow these strict sexual guidelines because they lived in a more restrained society than we do. And I have some figures here that show otherwise. Yeah. Um, First of all, we can't deny that sexual immorality is a part of our society. It's a problem now in this time. Uh, I've got some figures here on that. Right now, about 10 million million Americans live with an unmarried partner. It's about 8% of U.S. couples most in the 25 to 34 age group. Yeah. Uh, that number is growing. Some have pointed out that uh, divorce is going down, but the only reason for that is that Marriages fewer people are getting right. married yeah. and uh, they're just living together. Yeah. Uh, homosexuality is no growing. Tax credit. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It doesn't help your taxes. There are bigger problems here, Andrew. <laughs> Uh, homosexuality is growing yeah. and its acceptance and practice. I mean, it's unbelievable over the last 10 years how far we've come in accepting homosexuality. I mean, right. it's, just, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable. Just look, you know, every TV show, if a TV show doesn't have a homosexual character in it, it's criticized. Yeah, they're taking boycotted. it off the air. Yeah, yeah they, it. it's like part of the script now. You have to have that in yep. a movie or a TV show for it to be successful. Yep. And it's just politically incorrect to say anything against the practice of homosexuality. Right. Um, still, despite cohabitation, just over 40% of all marriages in this country end in divorce. It's higher in other countries. I've heard numbers in Russia as high as 80%. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. And uh, here's another one. A study done by the RAND Corporation shows that there's a strong connection between teens who watch and listen to sex and sexual talk on television and teens who engage in sexual activity. Duh. Oh, imagine that. Yeah. They had to do a study to figure that out. I know it. I know. <laughs> and and you know what? I, I like the trend in TV of getting away from uh, TV that's supported by commercials, uh, cable TV, where you can stream stuff and you have more on on demand yeah. is the term for it, you know. I'm talking about Netflix or Hulu. Hulu and all that stuff. I like to pay and choose what I watch, and there is some more control. But then the with the liberty that those services have come less regulations, mm-hmm. and fewer television shows are being put out for families now. And uh, You're right. There, there's no restrictions whatsoever. And my kids are still small. When they get more curious and they get older, I don't know what we're going to have to do something. I don't know what we're going to do. VeggieTales. Well, they, they've kind of outgrown that. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, one thing that we do in our house, and I'm not judging any who don't do this, but uh, we just have one TV set in the middle of the house. 
Yeah. And that means I have to watch a lot of kids stuff or just have it on, you know, be around it. And I don't get to watch as much TV maybe as I wanted to, uh, to allow the kids to see some of the things that they want to see. But I think it's worth it to know what's mm-hmm. on. They, they're not allowed to take an iPad or they don't have an iPad, but if they, if they did, or if they were able to use mine or something, they couldn't take it to their bedroom yeah. or take it somewhere where I'm not in the room. There's just too much junk out there. There's You're a lot right. more stuff that they can access. It's so much worse now, even than when, you know, when I was younger. Uh, like, I mean, I guess I was part of the last group that grew up with like the VHS dial-up internet kind of thing to where it wasn't nearly as accessible as it is now. Just any kind of media, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, I guess just with, I think smartphones came out when I was in high school. Yeah. iPhones, like when I was a sophomore or junior in high school. and yeah. uh, It's just crazy how much easier it is for us to consume all types of media now. And sadly, most of the media, and I know I sound like the, the old guy, and any you know teenagers or younger listening to this are going to roll their eyes at me now, but it's, that's, uh, you know. See, we both, that's a problem, though. Yeah, right? it is a problem. I mean that. The teenagers are looking at older generations, and you're not that old, but you're not old at all. No. But they're rolling their eyes like we're prudes. No, they're, the world has gotten really immoral. Yeah. And teenagers are exposed to way too much of this stuff. The exposure level is much higher. I don't know that the things going on now are that much different than the things that were going on when I was a kid. Um, well, this statistic, though... That we said, you know, we we're like, oh, obviously, there's a connection between the teens who watch and listen to sex and sexual talk on television and teens who it. engage in sexual activity, which means as the more you consume of that media, yeah. the more practice is going to be, yeah, the more activity is going to be. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we can expect to see these numbers rise as a result of several things the accessibility that you were talking about and I rudely mm-hmm. interrupted you no you're, you're uh, the the greater accessibility and also the the liberty parents are giving them yeah you know they they need to get on top Some of, of that these comes from ignorance too I know a lot of parents who how are, can they be ignorant they just of it? don't well I think a lot of it is just neglect they don't want to know they don't That's want to know right. what's out yeah. there but there's a guy who does this digital parenting thing you know Chad Landman I'm sure you probably heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of him. He does a great job just letting parents know what's out there, um, helping them be, I guess, be equipped to deal with some of that stuff as their kids get older. But I, you know, I wish there were some way to really ingrain it into kids' heads. And I know whenever this comes up with the teenagers, we talk about like media intake. You know, I try to make sure I'm talking to them in a way to where I don't, you know, sound the guy like, "Oh, you kids and your rap music and nerd to mm-hmm. get off my lawn." And all that, but <laughs> uh, it you know it it stands to reason that the it what drives me crazy is when we have people saying oh it's so hard for us to to combat this sin and the big one that you hear from teenagers is this one you know mm-hmm. you got like alcohol and then sexual immorality are the two big things that kids always complain about mm-hmm. it's so hard to be a Christian and not do this and it's harder for me than it has been for everyone who's ever lived. And I, I shouldn't say it like that because I don't want to downplay mm-hmm. temptation that you face at that stage in life or any stage in life. But at the same time, 
I mean, you've got to be honest enough with yourself to say, is it my fault that I'm so tempted to do this? If you're putting into your head every free minute that you have... You're feeding temptation. That's if right. You're, putting, you're feeding desire. Yeah. If you're, yeah. Don't tell me you struggle with that and it's just your struggle and you try really hard, but sometimes you give in. When all the music you listen to is about sex, all the TV shows you watch have mm-hmm. these horrible sex scenes in them and all this... Yeah, All this yeah, I'm glad you mentioned music because everything I said about streaming television applies to the music that's acceptable today. Yeah. Because the same things happen in music. Used to, uh, the government controlled what could be played over the airwaves. But now with satellite radio, internet radio, yeah. um, streaming want. services like Spotify, uh, the kinds of songs that have... It's no mistake that rock and roll is no longer popular mm-hmm. and hip-hop is the number one kind of music that people listen to. I mean, mm-hmm. look, hip-hop music, and people may think this is a a bad statement, but hip-hop music is one of the major themes is sex, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to bring you in on this on this opinion. Okay. But it, it's true. I mean, that's... And look, well, any I, kind of and somebody music. say, well, rock and roll also, and that's yeah. true, but not to the extent of the Hip-hop, graphic language. Country, everything. Like, name, try to think of a song that's not either about that or drugs. Um, it's hard to think of. Uh, Down on the Corner by CCR. <laughs> there you go. There are songs CCR that are about songs. CCR is the only biblically approved Internet streaming band. Down on the bayou, down in the bayou, fortunate son, born on the bayou. I I don't know. (laughs) That's not like my favorite. I mean, they're not bad. bad. Maybe it is. I like them. Uh, But where I was going with this is that it it was it was just as bad or worse back in Roman times. I know it doesn't sound like that's where I was going, but I wanted to share this quote from uh, uh, the History of European Morals by William Lecky. Okay. In that he describes this, yeah, he describes the sexual license during the Roman Empire as this: there has probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars. I believe uh, that Roman Roman culture was just as bad as ours. Yeah. So whatever Paul is asking them to do can be done today. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, definitely so. Let me give you, we're swiftly running out of time. Um, I want to give two fundamental principles promoting sexual purity that we get from 1 Thessalonians 4. All right. Number one, God has a God-given context for sexual purity, which is heterosexual marriage. I have to phrase it that way now because we're in an age now where same-sex marriage is accepted by our culture and by our laws, and so I can't just say marriage. Used to, that's what you would say. Mm-hmm. But heterosexual marriage, um, he says each of you should know how to possess his own body. Another translation says wife or spouse. And so, uh, you know, this, he doesn't go into as much detail here as he does in First Corinthians 7, for example, uh, where the place for this kind of activity is within a marriage Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, based on his other writings, we know that's what he means. Number two, God has a God-given, or I'm sorry, number two, sex has a God-given style, which is holiness and honor. Uh, verse four says, 
in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, he's so marriage is not a form of legalized lust. It's uh, Hebrews thirteen four calls the marriage bed honorable and undefiled, and uh, so bottom line is. God has given sex as something that is good in the context of heterosexual marriage mm -hmm. and in the style of holiness and honor, not in a way that transgresses God or covets others or lusts after illicit things. Um, mm -hmm. It can be done. I think it's important we teach our children from a very young age because as we get older, we make mistakes sometimes that are hard to walk away from. We develop desires that are hard to curtail. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course, everybody makes mistakes and God forgives. But uh, the consequences of some sexual behavior uh, last a lifetime. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's basically that. I know we had some other practical points to make. but Do we got time? No, we don't. Got... We don't. Okay. So, uh, well, I really like that last point you made. I wasn't going to weigh on this. We have more time to move on. But about marriage is not just legalized lust. It's about um, honor and holiness. I think that's a really good point for, you know, any like younger folks who are maybe itching to get married, just thinking, okay, now we can legalize what yeah. we want to do. It's not, you know, it's about um Holiness and honor and glorifying God in your relationship, and that's it is physical, but it has yeah. it has to do with more than just the physical. Right, that's that's and, the point. There's there's much more to it. Um, yeah, and Ephesians uh, five thirty two says it's a the mystery is great, but Paul says when I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ and His Church, and so every marriage is not just about the husband and wife. Every marriage is about Christ ultimately yeah. and his love for the church, his sacrificial love for the church and the church's commitment to mm -hmm. him. And I think that is an important thing for all of us to keep in mind. Definitely yeah. so. Well, thanks for joining us on the 66. We've got one more chapter in 1 Thessalonians and we intend yep. on carrying this on through to 2 Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope that you'll stick with us uh, we've already listed some of the ways that you can find us online, the66.net. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. You can email us at akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Drew, you're going to start us an Instagram account, right? I'm not doing Never. Instagram. <laughs> I don't take enough pictures for that. Do you want to put That's us on a picture Snapchat? Thing, right? Can we do I don't do. I don't recommend Snapchat. Does that, that fall under that? <laughs> Does that fall under the fornication of the New uh, Testament? That is one of those Snapchat forms. Yes, do not play Snapchat. Got do it. Do not play that. <laughs> um, we're so kidding, folks. Don't look for us on Snapchat. Yeah, no way. Uh, so, uh, one more chapter to 1 Thessalonians. We'll do 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 next time mm -hmm. on the 66. 